Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways that you work in our lives. We thank you that you have written our story and that it contains trials, but it also contains blessings that we do not expect, we do not see coming. We thank you for how you work in each of our lives that way. We thank you for the gift that it is to hear about how you have worked in other people's lives in that way. We pray that you would continue to work in that. We pray that you continue to bless all of us through that. We pray now that as we turn to your word, that you would continue that work, that you would help us to see you more clearly and to respond to you uh, more rightly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's my uh, third time uh, this month looking together at God's word with all of you. I've enjoyed the opportunity to do it, and I hope that God has brought some good about uh, through it for some of you, something hopefully other than uh, you're deciding to watch The Born Identity a couple weeks ago. That wasn't really one of my spiritual goals in my sermon that week, but it may have been one of the main effects. So, Anyway, I've been taking my texts this month from the gospel passages that are given in the lectionary, the, the lectionary being a set of texts used by some churches that give different readings for each Sunday of the church year. This being just after Christmas, our texts have mainly come from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And while I didn't begin with a series in mind, a theme has seemed to emerge, at least to my eyes. Two weeks ago, we looked at the baptism of Jesus, and last Sunday morning, we considered Christ's calling of Philip and Nathaniel, and tonight we'll be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, and the beginning of Jesus' preaching, as well as the calling of Peter and Andrew and of James and John. We might say that the theme that has emerged over these three texts is our discipleship and the beginning of Christ's ministry. That is how our discipleship relates to the beginning of Christ's ministry. In other words, what do we learn about what it means for us to follow Jesus now as his people from the opening scenes of Christ's earthly ministry? And we're going to continue that theme tonight. So that said, let's look at our text for this evening at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. And please do listen carefully, for this is God's word for us this evening. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, they saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were both in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. I want to start as we consider our text this evening by asking you, How did that text hit you? What effect did it have on you? When you heard those words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, and when you heard of the call of the disciples, how did that make you feel? What was your response? If we're honest, I think most of us felt nothing really, or very little. We were generally unfazed by it. And that's a little bit weird. It's weird. And if we're going to begin to understand this text and what it means for our lives, we need to start by realizing that our initial response to it is a little bit weird. 
For most of us, the announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand and that we must repent and believe the gospel is odd at best and unimpressive at worst. So first, it might be odd. We tend to associate the language of repent and believe and the proclamation of an impending kingdom with a wild-looking street preacher or a crazy-eyed guy holding a sign with that plastered across it. It seems odd to us. It sounds a little bit crazy. Or it may just seem unimpressive to us. It may seem boring. We've heard it before. If you grew up in the church, we've heard it over and over and over, and we barely even seem to notice it anymore when we hear it now. The, uh, the house that we're in right now, the house that we moved into when we came to Tacoma, has the most sensitive smoke detector that I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. It goes off all of the time. And I, I want to clarify, just, just so I'm clear on this, my wife does not burn our food. I mean, if I try to cook something, I do, so it's not a shock when it happens then, but she doesn't do that. But you don't even really have to be cooking yet for it to go off, we've learned. Sometimes all you have to do is preheat the oven or start to heat up the griddle or maybe lightly toast some bread, and the smoke detector just goes wild. And, and I know we've, we've thought about it if it was something that these, things, these appliances were dirty, but it's not that either. Sometimes as we're getting dinner ready, you don't see any smoke, you don't smell any smoke, but the smoke detector will go off anyway. I'm waiting for the day when I simply reach out my hand to start to preheat the oven, and the smoke detector goes off before my hand even touches the knob. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm waiting for it. And it's been like that ever since we moved into the house, ever since we moved to Tacoma. I guess at least if there ever actually is a fire in our house, we will be warned. Now, whenever the smoke detector goes off, Rachel, Olive, and I all respond strongly. We wince and we cover our ears and we try to make it stop going off. And that makes sense. That's a normal, appropriate response to a smoke alarm. But Rosie, our one-year-old, doesn't bat an eye. Rosie doesn't cringe even a little bit. In fact, she barely seems to notice most of the time. And there's nothing wrong with her hearing. But she goes on doing whatever she was doing. She may not even turn around to look at it. She's unfazed. Her response is kind of weird, right? Because that's not how you're supposed to respond to a loud smoke alarm. But Rosie has lived in that house with that smoke detector since she was about four weeks old. She's heard it regularly for her entire life, just about. For her, it's sort of unimpressive. It's boring. It's part of life. It's not even worth noting. It's not even worth turning around to see. She barely even hears it. For her, it just fades into the background. It's not that big of a deal. When we respond to our text this evening, feeling nothing, when we shrug it off, when we're unimpressed, we're a bit like Rosie in how she responds to the smoke alarm. Our response is understandable, but it's kind of weird. It's not how someone is supposed to respond to something like this text. Our familiarity with Jesus' proclamation has made us deaf to it. So we need to look a little bit closer and regain our ability to hear it again. The first hearers of Jesus' proclamation would not have responded like Rosie. They would not have heard a trite religious platitude or a repeated moral exhortation, but they would have heard something that would have caught their attention. They would have taken notice. They would have gotten excited. So why was that? What would they have heard in that proclamation? I don't consider myself in any real way to be a disciple of N.T. Wright, but I feel I need to give credit where it's due and mention that my understanding of this text was largely helped by his book, Jesus and the Victory of God. 
It's a larger book on the Gospels. It was the textbook that we use at Covenant Seminary for the Gospels. And in it, Wright spends over 65 pages on the meaning of verse 15 in our text. So whether you agree with him or not, there's plenty there to get you thinking, at least. Wright brings out five aspects of Jesus' early proclamation, three of which we see in our text this evening. And it's those three, as they appear in our text and as they function in our text, that I want to focus on tonight. In this text, we see Jesus make an announcement, an invitation, and a summons. And if we're going to understand what those three things mean for us, we need to begin by understanding how those things are functioning in the text itself. So first we have an announcement. That's the first part of verse 15. Jesus announces, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what does that mean? It may be helpful to start with what it does not mean. First, when Jesus announces the kingdom of God is at hand, he does not mean that the space-time universe is about to end. He is not announcing the obliteration or replacement of the physical world. Some have interpreted him to mean that, but without going into a lot of detail, the rest of Jesus' ministry and the ministry of his closest followers would contradict any such meaning. Jesus' ministry is not one of proclaiming the end of the space-time universe, and that is imminent. And that's not what this text is about. But that said, we can also err in the opposite direction. Because just as equally, Jesus is not proclaiming a general spiritual truth, something that has been true at all times and in all places. He is not announcing a new religious perspective or framework. He's not proclaiming a set of spiritual laws or religious platitudes for those who might be interested. In other words, Jesus is not announcing that God is and has always been close to everyone everywhere and that we all need to just change our perspective to appreciate that and live accordingly. That's not the point of what he's saying in this passage. That's not what the coming of the kingdom of God meant to a first century Jew. Biblical Judaism was not a static religion that made general claims about spiritual reality, but a religion that believed that a particular God had acted in particular ways at particular times and with particular people. And they were waiting for him to do that again. They were not looking for, and Jesus was not proclaiming a static set of religious propositions about spiritual reality. They were waiting for a God who would act in time and space. So what then did Jesus mean when he announced the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand? What would a first century Jew have heard in those words? What should we hear? A first century Jew would have heard that Yahweh, that the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob was on the move, that he was going to act, and that he was going to take the throne among his people, that he was going to rescue his people and defeat their enemies. They would have heard that God was going to do something, something in time and space, something that had not been done before, and the focus would have been on God's reign. The word translated kingdom here can also be translated reign. God's reign is what is at hand. His kingship was about to take place. The God who had called Abraham and who had been with Jacob and had rescued Israel from Egypt, who had been with Joshua during the conquest and had established David on the throne and had sent Israel into exile, was going to act again. And by announcing it the way he did, Jesus was proclaiming that this event, the movement, the acting, the rescuing, the reign of God, was going to take place through Jesus himself, through his ministry. How exactly that was going to happen had not yet been proclaimed at this point in the gospel. We have the rest of Mark's gospel to fill that out. But it would have been clear to anyone who heard that Jesus had a unique role in this process. So Jesus makes this announcement. He proclaims that Israel's God is on the move and is about to act and establish his reign in a new way. And he will do it specifically through Jesus. That is the announcement. But the announcement, we said, is not alone. 
It's not just information that's being delivered. It's accompanied by an invitation and a summons. Because after the announcement is made, the second half of Jesus' proclamation is repent and believe the gospel. This is Jesus' invitation. Now, invitation is the word that N.T. Wright uses, and I think it's kind of a weak term, but I couldn't come up with a better one, so we're going to go with it for now. Suffice it to say, this is a forceful invitation. It comes with some oomph. It's more than just a little note with pictures of balloons on it about a party. It's stronger than that. It's an invitation to respond to the announcement properly, to repent, and to believe the gospel. Now, here again, we have to stop and pause for a minute and reflect on what Jesus means. Because for us, the words repent and believe and gospel are all technical religious terms. They mean very specific religious things for us. And that's not a bad thing. For a first century Jew, they would have meant specific religious things too. They did. But they also meant more than that. They meant more than that, not less. So let's start with the word gospel. It's common for us to mean a very specific set of doctrines by that phrase, but the word basically means good news. And what is the good news that Jesus is referring to at this point in the story, in Mark chapter 1, in the beginning of his ministry? It is the news that God is on the move, that God is taking the throne among his people, that God is going to rescue them. Jesus is urging people to believe the words that he's proclaiming, to believe his announcement, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the good news for God's people at this moment. And what does he mean when he says repent and believe? Again, we tend to read a specific religious meaning into this, and that meaning is not wrong. It just might be a little bit too narrow for us to reflect on. We tend to hear it as saying either that we should stop doing morally bad things and start doing morally good things, or that we should stop believing false things and start believing true things, or some combination of those two ideas. And it does include those things. But it's also broader than that. Wright shows this in an interesting way by giving an example of the same phrase being used in another non-religious context in the first century, in about 66 AD, just a few decades after Christ had made this proclamation. Josephus was a Jew who was born after Jesus' death and resurrection, and while he's well known by some as an ancient historian and scholar, before that he was a Jewish military leader. At one point when he was a leader, he traveled to Galilee to sort out some factionalism that was going on among the Jews there, and a brigand leader, a leader of an outlaw set of revolutionaries, made a plot against Josephus' life. Josephus foiled the plot, and then he wrote about the incident in his autobiography. He wrote about his response to the man who had planned it. And he said that he would show, um, excuse me, he said that he would accept this revolutionary, he would receive him again if he would show his repentance and prove his loyalty to me. That's the phrase that he uses. And after quoting that phrase, Wright is quick to point out that the same phrase could also be translated if he would repent and believe in me. What does Josephus mean by that phrase? What does he mean by repent and believe in me? He's essentially calling on the brigand leader not just to give up on his way of life, but to embrace Josephus' way. He calls him to give up his way of being Israel and to adopt Josephus' way of being Israel. He calls him to give up his agenda for himself and for God's people and to adopt Josephus' agenda for God's people. And so what does it mean when Jesus calls out for others to repent and believe the good news, that the kingdom of God is at hand? He, too, is inviting them to respond. Is he calling on them to stop sinning and to pursue righteousness? Yes, he is. Is he calling on them to abandon their false beliefs and to trust in him? Yes. 
Is he calling Israel to abandon the rebellion against God and to return to him again? He's doing that as well. But even more broadly than that, he's calling on them to give up their agendas and to take up his. To give up their agendas for their lives. To give up their agendas for their families. To give up their agendas as the people of God and to take up his. Wright puts it simply. He says, like Josephus, Jesus was urging his compatriots to abandon a whole way of life and to trust him for a different one. This is Jesus' invitation. And it's an invitation that demands a response. As Wright puts it, Jesus has announced a play that is in search of a cast. Jesus' hearers, whether they like it or not, could not remain mere spectators. They were on stage. The only question was, which part would they choose to play? So we have Jesus' announcement. God is about to act in history to rescue his people and to establish his reign. We have Jesus' invitation to respond to that announcement by abandoning their own agendas and ways of life and to trust him for a different one. And finally, in the rest of the text, we get the summons. Let me read again from verses 16 to 20. It says, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. In this part of the text, Jesus summons followers to help him in this work. There are a lot of questions that we often have about this text. Had Jesus spoken with these men before? Had they heard him preach? How well did they really know him before responding to this call? We're looking for the backstory. Mark and the other gospel writers seem largely uninterested in giving us that information, and so really we don't know much. What we do know is that after his announcement and his, and his invitation, Jesus gave a summons for others to join in his mission, to help spread his proclamation and to extend his ministry. These men each received a particular stark summons. It is that summons for these four men to walk away from their livelihoods, their extended families, and their communities to follow Jesus that Mark draws our attention to. And that summons was significant. This was a culture that valued family more than many of us can appreciate. This was a culture where businesses remained in the family for generation upon generation. This is a culture where a family business was a safe and reliable way to survive in a time and place without much new economic opportunity or mobility. But these men walk away from their extended family, from their work, from their economic security, all good things, but they walk away from them because Jesus summons them to help his mission, to help in his agenda for Israel and for the world. So we have the announcement, the invitation, and the summons. And the three are all bound up together. In fact, they're so bound up that you can't really have any one of them without the others. The announcement of the kingdom demands the invitation and the summons because if it is true, then there's no other reasonable way to respond. Again, it's a bit like the smoke alarm. Let's imagine it was to go off one night, and it's not just because I'm heating up the oven. Let's say it goes off at 3 a.m., and Rachel and I wake up. How would we hear that alarm? Well, I think if we stop and think about it, in that alarm we would hear an announcement, an invitation, and a summons of sorts. This first an announcement. The alarm announces, your house is on fire. That's what it tells us. But it doesn't just stop there with that announcement. 
If all we hear is an announcement and then we roll over and go back to bed, we've not properly understood the meaning of the alarm. It is an announcement, but it is inseparably connected to an invitation. And the invitation is simple. You should save yourself by getting out of here. Or to put it more simply, get up and run. Again, like I said, the word invitation is a bit too weak, but it is essentially a very robust and emphatic invitation to get up and go. But once again, it doesn't end there. Because Rachel and I do not live alone. We have two daughters. And so the alarm, along with its announcement and invitation, also brings a summons. Get your daughters and take them to safety. And those three things are inseparable for us. We cannot hear one without the next one in the sequence. If it is announced to us that there's a fire, we cannot hear it without knowing that we must respond. And we cannot respond without considering our children. And the same is true with Christ's proclamation in Mark chapter 1. The announcement that God is about to act cannot be spoken or heard without including a call to respond rightly. And the call to respond rightly cannot be heard without including a call to spread the word for others to respond rightly as well. And so as he begins his ministry, Jesus sends out his proclamation. He announces the kingdom. He invites a proper response that Israel would give up her own agenda and adopt Jesus' agenda. And then for Andrew and for Peter, for James and for John, he summons them to play a role in his work. And they respond, hearing and obeying. That is good. Now, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? We've just talked about what Jesus' proclamation meant at its specific time and in its specific place. And so, almost 2,000 years later and over 6,000 miles away, what does that have to do with us? Well, Mark did not write down these events purely for informational purposes. Mark expected this same proclamation to have a reverberating meaning through time and through space, down the line, down all the way even to us. The details of the application may be a little bit different, but Jesus' announcement, his invitation, and his summons remain for us as well. So let's think about them again. First, there is the announcement. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does this mean for us? Well, it is still neither the proclamation of the end of the space-time universe, nor is it a static claim about general spiritual truths. For us, it is a call to respond to the fact that in some way the kingdom has come. As he said he would, God has conquered the enemies of his people, and he's established his reign through Christ. It did not look the way many first century Jews expected it to. It was not primarily about the Romans. It was, it was excuse me, <clears throat> it was about greater enemies than them. Enemies that were not less real than them, but more. It was about defeating sin and death and the devil. And in his life, death, and resurrection, that is what Christ did. In his death and resurrection, Jesus made the decisive blow to his enemies, and they have been defeated. And on his return, they will be brought to a complete end, and the kingdom will be fully realized. But now we live in the interim. It is the interim, but it's not a mere lull. It is not a dull or a static time for us. It is a time when the effects of the kingdom of God coming in the first century A.D. are still being felt. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus announces that a bomb is about to go off. And in his death and resurrection, it does. But it doesn't stop there. Like an atomic bomb going off over the ocean, it's not only felt at the moment or at the exact spot of detonation. The effects ripple outwards. After the explosion over the water, waves rise up and then radiate outward and travel for miles. 
But unlike with a physical explosion, these waves do not lose their size or their power as they expand out. And we live on that wave. Our moment in history and every moment in history after Christ's death and resurrection is lived in light of that explosion and affected by it. The power of what Christ has done, of how the kingdom has come in his life and death and resurrection, is the spiritual reality that we live in. And so the call of the gospel is not for us a set of static spiritual laws or general spiritual principles, but the dynamic reality of the effect of Christ's work in bringing God's reign to bear. We look forward to when the effect reaches its height and Christ returns and death and sin and the devil are no more, but we still live in light of the fact that Christ's work has been done and the rescue of God's people is sure and the kingdom is established in Christ. So the announcement for us is that the kingdom of God has come in Christ. And what he did in the first century A.D. has rippled outward from that moment in time and shaped reality for us today. The announcement is the kingdom has come. And the invitation follows. Repent and believe the good news. That is the invitation for us today. It is the necessary implication of the announcement. Christ has changed everything. He has turned the world upside down. And now we are asked how we will respond. We hear, in effect, the same invitation the first century Jews did. Jesus urges us to abandon our whole way of life and to trust him for a different one. He calls us to abandon our agenda and to take up his. What does that mean for us? Well, it means different things depending on where we are spiritually. What would it mean for you to give up your agenda and to follow Jesus' instead? And I mean you, specifically. It's easy with a sermon, it's easy when we start talking about repentance to start thinking about some other people that this text or these principles apply to. But I'm not asking, and more importantly, Christ is not asking what it looks like for your friend or for your enemy, for your spouse or for your child to give up their agenda and follow Jesus's. But what it looks like for you to give up your agenda and follow Christ instead. So what does it look like? Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Or maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but if you're honest with yourself, Christ has no meaningful part of your day-to-day life. Well, for you, the meaning of this text is the most obvious one. Christ calls you to give up your agenda and to take up his. To give up your plans and your goals, to give up your values, to give up your deepest loyalties and to adopt his. He calls you to repent and believe. He calls you to follow him. He calls you to himself. How will you respond? Jesus goes out, his call goes out, and he doesn't leave any room for spectators. There's no audience in this play. We are all on the stage. The only question is, what role will you play? We will all play some role. What will you choose? Maybe you are a Christian, but you have an area where sin has a significant foothold in your life. Maybe it goes unchallenged in that area. You've left it alone. For you, the call is to return to God in faithfulness and wage war with that sin. The call for you is to repent and trust. The call for you is to give up your agenda for this area of your life and to adopt Christ's agenda for it. Whether you like his agenda or not, whether it seems pleasant to you or not, our call is to trust that it is best, that it is good, that it will make us fit for his kingdom. And finally, maybe you are a Christian and no specific area of unchallenged sin comes to mind tonight. In some ways, the most complex or difficult form of this call may come to you. 
Because you need to ask, how is your life oriented? Whose agenda are you following? It is possible to live what appears to be a very ethical life, while at its deepest level, our lives are really about our own agenda and not Christ's. In what areas can you see that in your life? It may be your job. Has it crowded out other callings in your life? Callings to your family, callings to the church, and not because you need to work more to make ends meet or because of how your work will serve others, but the primary motivation is because you've chosen a specific trajectory of career success that is more about your agenda than it is about Christ's. Or it may be about your family. If you're honest with yourself, when you think of your family, whose kingdom is it in your mind? Do you think of it as an outpost of Christ's kingdom, or do you think of it as your kingdom? You may think of it as your kingdom that's in a strong alliance with Christ's kingdom for sure, but do you still ultimately think of it as yours? In your mind and in your cultivation of your family, does it exist to serve Christ's kingdom or does it exist for itself? Does it exist for you? Whose agenda does it serve? If not your job or your family, it may even be a hobby or a form of entertainment. In our culture, we often define ourselves by our hobbies, by aspects of our entertainment. We make it part of our identities. Maybe it's something else. But whether it's our jobs or our families, our hobbies or something else, we all have areas of our lives where we have clung to our agenda and not to Christ's, where we have taken a good thing and made it into an idol. The challenge is to consider what that is for you. And what does it look like for you to set down your agenda in that area of your life and take up Christ's? Where do you need to do that? Where do you need to repent and believe? And so we have the announcement and the invitation, and finally we have the summons. Christ calls us to participate in his mission. Much like he called Andrew and Peter, James and John, he issues a summons to us to help him in the extension of the kingdom. He issues a summons for us to help him with his work. If we're going to grasp what that means for us, the first thing we need to do is recognize that this summons is somewhat absurd. It's a bit absurd. Let's think about it this way. In Mark chapter 1, we begin with the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. Similarly, in John chapter 1, we begin with the claim that Jesus is the divine Logos, that the Logos, he's the Logos that was in the beginning with God, the Logos that is God. We're told that through him all things were made. He is God himself. And so in Jesus, God himself arrives. And in both Gospels, in both Mark and John, one of the first things that he does is to ask a bunch of fishermen for help. The Son of God, one with the Father, the King of Israel, approaches a bunch of Israelite fishermen and asks them to help him out. This is absurd. We should recognize that. And this absurdity continues today. This absurdity is how God chose to act then and it's how God chooses to continue to act now. So let's think of it this way. What part of our summons to go out and to serve Christ's kingdom do you dread the most? Is it to go out into the world and to look at where there's brokenness and to serve in that place? Is it to face and respond to injustice around you that you'd rather ignore? Is it to show hospitality to those who are outside your comfort zone? To reach out to those who you find it difficult to relate to? Is it evangelism? sharing your faith with others, making the gospel known to them. What is it that you dread? You know, one thing 
not as part of Christ calling on me. One thing I don't dread, I don't hate, but that I don't like to do is setting the table for dinner. Bear with me here. This is going to connect in a minute. I mean, I don't hate it. I don't dread it. But I don't really like doing it. But Olive, our four-year-old, at least at this moment in time, loves it. She delights in doing it. Now, I know that there is a timer on how long that's going to last. But why is it that at this moment that she loves doing it? Why is it different for her than it is for me? Well, it's because setting the table is an adult thing in her mind. It's a thing that adults do. And she's a child, but she can help. She can do this adult thing. She can set the table, and it's exciting and fun for her because it's not something that she sees as being made for her. It's an adult thing, but she gets a chance to help do it, even as a child. And it's the same with our summons to serve Christ's kingdom. What part of that summons do you dread? Is it possible that you're seeing it wrongly? Is it possible that you're missing the absurdity of it all? Is it possible that you're thinking of it like I think of setting the table when you should be thinking of it like Olive thinks of setting the table? Is it possible that you're seeing it as a regular chore instead of like a child getting to do an adult thing? Because seeking out brokenness and bringing healing to it is not really a human thing. It's a God thing. Facing injustice and seeking to bring righteousness to it is not a human thing. It's a God thing. Reaching out to the marginal or the difficult is not a human thing. It's a God thing. And gathering rebels into Christ's kingdom and making them into faithful sons and servants is especially not a human thing. It is a God thing. God has called us as humans to do God things, to help him in his God things. And it's absurd. But like a four-year-old sitting at a table or helping prepare dinner, that absurdity should make it a joy for us more than a burden. Now, don't misunderstand me. The summons to serve the kingdom is hard. It is difficult. It can be very uncomfortable. But we should rejoice in the absurdity that God would make us part of the process, a process that he does not need us for, in which we are not fit for. But he calls us to come alongside him and help him do God things. So we have Christ's announcement. For us, the kingdom has come. God is on the move. Christ sits on the throne. We have his invitation. Repent and believe, give up your agenda in every area of life and take up his. And we have his summons to be agents of his kingdom and to serve its extension. The proclamation has gone out. Whether we like it or not, we cannot remain mere spectators. Christ has left no seats for an audience. We are all on stage. Which part will you choose to play? Amen.